Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Live Life Aggressive Podcast. This is Sincere Hogan. I have my partner, Mike Mahler, on the line, man. Another great guest today. Very, I've been looking forward to this one for the past few weeks when you told me that we were going to have him on the show, man. Right. Saw a lot of interesting clips of him on YouTube that you had pointed me to in the very beginning. And really, we kind of brought some things up during our last, during the Live Life Aggressive Podcast Summit. Uh, just some things that were referenced to his book that we were trying to hope that it would influence the group a lot more and have them also looking into his material as well. So, so this is going to be really good, man. Yeah, I agree. No, we have Stephen Cutler on the on the line today, and he's the author of The Rise of Superman, which is an incredible book talking about how to improve human performance via flow. So anyone who's interested in getting better workouts or getting more out of your life, your business, you really want to stay tuned to this episode and then definitely pick up his book. Before we get Steve on the line, just remember you can support the show by using coupon code LLA to get 10% off any of the aggressive strength line at MikeMahler.com. And how about at your site, man? Same thing. You can purchase any products over there on NewWarriorTraining.com. Use the same coupon code LLA and you get 10% off all those products as well. Perfect. Steve, how you doing today? Super well. How are great, you guys? Great to have you on, man. Appreciate it. Let's Please. let's get right into this. Can you start off with what, what exactly is flow? Absolutely. So the f- first thing to know is lots of different names for flow, right? Over the years, it's been called everything from runner's high to being in the zone. If you're a basketball player, it's being unconscious. If you're a jazz musician, you're in the pocket. If you're a stand-up comic, you're in the forever box what you're doing, everything else vanishes. There's several neurochemicals. I'm really interested in brain health and how to optimize the brain health. What are the main neurochemicals that are involved with this state of flow? So um, let me back up half a step from where you are um, okay. and just broaden this out. We, flow science dates back about 150 years. The psychology has been mapped very thoroughly. The neurobiology, which is what you're asking after, yeah. we've got about 25 years of a window into the neurobiology. We've got Great information, but it's not complete. There's a lot of unanswered questions. That said, when we talk neurobiology, you want to know three things. Neuroanatomy, where something is taking place in the brain, and neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, the two ways the brain sends signals. Neurochemistry in flow is astounding. What happens neurochemically is the brain releases norepinephrine, dopamine, anandamide, endorphins, and serotonin on the tail end. These are five of the most powerful performance-enhancing chemicals the brain can produce. There are also five of the most potent pleasure chemicals the brain can produce. And flow appears, though not 100%, that it appears to be the only time the brain produces all five simultaneously. This makes, among other things, flow incredibly, incredibly addictive. Scientists yeah. don't like the word addictive, right? They right. use autotelic, which means an end in itself, where they say flow is the source code of intrinsic motivation. All that means is once an experience starts producing flow, you'll go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it. Right. So, you know, in today's world, we talk, you talk about business in your opening, right? Recent Gallup survey found 71% of workers are disengaged or actively disengaged on the job. Have you heard this term, actively disengaged? Oh, yeah. Yes. It's my not, favorite. Only, not only have I heard it, I've seen it. <laughs> exactly. Right? I've seen it in action. It's my favorite euphemism <laughs> for today. Like, I hate my job so much, I'm going to sabotage the company. <laughs> <laughs> it's astounding. But anyway, 71% of workers, three out of four of us basically hate what we do with the majority of our time. Right. The rest of people have jobs that create flow, and they can't wait to get to work in the morning. 
and we've all like we've seen this motivation in action, right? Surfers are not known to be the most motivated group of people in the world, but surfing produces a tremendous amount of flow. Yes. Yeah. It's overhead tubes off the point at Malibu. There's guys lining up in the parking lot at 4 a.m. putting on cold wetsuits, paddling through colder water to get some, right? What are what are some of the negatives of flow though? Because one thing people always talk about the positives of being in a flow state or the positive of pursuing your goals and living your passion and quitting that job you hate and going full into what you exactly want to do. But no one's ever talked about the negatives, the potential negatives of that path. Yeah. Yeah, until you, until I read your book, which I thought was interesting <laughs> because I've never heard that before. Right. It's a great, it's a great and very important question. And you know, flow is a tremendous high, right? It is, it is a huge up performance, it is not like, we always say at the Flow Genome Project, that flow is not self-help, and it's not self-help on both sides. Self-help is you are playing with fundamentally addictive neurochemicals, very, 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 very deep, evolutionarily, you know, laid down intrinsic motivations, and it comes with a lot of dangers. For example, we talked about the neurochemistry, right? This is a huge high that shows up in the flow state. But those chemicals, as you know, you need vitamins, you need minerals, you need certain food sources, you need sunlight, you know, a bunch of things to make more. Right. So the huge high of the flow state is followed by a deep low. Now, this is a recovery period. Most people actually don't know it's there. And, it, you know, one of the things that makes, you know, this pursuit of flow a lot easier is understanding that flow comes in a cycle and where you are in the cycle is going to depend, you know, it's going right. to be how you feel um, on a certain level. But, you know, there's a deep low that follow, follows this. And I think, you know, Take, for example, creatives. We know that, you know, creativity itself is a flow trigger, and creatives, whether we're talking about writers or producers or directors or video editors or what have you, um, there's a huge flow high to finish any creative project as a general rule, and it's followed by a deep low, which is why creatives have the highest rate of suicide. Yeah. Right? And and, And it's based, a lot of it's based on ignorance. Like, if you know this is coming, there's ways, to, and, and everybody knows the ways around it. And I'll, when we, we teach classes, I always talk about what I call the hangover rule. Right. Mm-hmm. If you've been intoxicated more than three times, you've been hungover, and you've learned very quickly that you ignore the voice in your head when you're hungover because it's totally negative and it's only going to drive you crazy. And you just say to yourself, you know what? Okay, I get it. I'm the worst person in the world, but I'm going to deal with this tomorrow when I don't feel so bad. Right. Right. Everybody does that. You have to do that on the back end of a flow state. You have to go from not being Superman anymore and just, you know, sort of live with it for a little while while your body recharges and give yourself the space to recharge. Right. Just wanted to backtrack one second. Now, you talked about how most people hate their jobs, and as a result, you're not going to get into flow if you hate what you're doing. I think that's a, a really interesting point because so if, right. if you don't like what you do, you know, you're, you're posi- you, you can't possibly get into flow. So I think some people are probably listening right now going, how do I, how do I get into this flow state? But you're not well, going to be able to do that if, if you don't like what you do in life, right? Yes and no. That's tricky. And so let's peel back the hood on passion a little bit. Okay. And you ask, how can most people get into flow? And that's the place to start. What we know is that flow states have triggers. There are about 17 of them. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. Why action adventure sport athletes, who I focus on the rise of Superman, um, have become so good at hacking flow. They sort of inadvertently, but they did it. They built their lives around these 17 triggers. They packed their lives with the preconditions that lead to more flow. Anybody can do this. And you can actually do this in a, you know, in a bad situation as well. And the reason is all these triggers are, when you look under the hood, there's a lot of, kind of fancy language in neurobiology, but 
simple terms, they're focusing mechanisms, right? They're ways of driving attention into the now, right? When we are focused in the present moment, that's the only time flow can take place. Right. And so all of these things are evolutionary flow hacks in a sense, right? So passion is very simply, right, demystified. It's a focusing mechanism. That's the big deal here. Mm-hmm. We know what the ingredients for passion are. Dan Pink wrote Drive about it. It's great, right? It's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. If you have those three conditions, you tend to create something that produces a lot of flow, right? And this is sort of the recipe for passion <laughs> under the hood. And, you know, what that really translates into is I care a great deal about this. I'm going to pay a lot of attention to it. Right. And that's, that's the trigger. That's the difference. So you are right. You're right. Most people can't, they don't work in an environment where they care enough about what they're doing that they can't pay attention, right? Now, that said, I'm a creative. I spent my whole life as a writer. And in halfway through my career, I went through a transition that I think is very standard for any successful creative, which is you spend the first 10 years of your career so developing your voice and getting known for your voice. And once you get to a certain level, everybody says, oh, that's great, that's fantastic, you're at this level, and now write the best Wired Magazine article you could possibly write, and we don't care about your voice. (laughs) And you spend the second half chunk of your career writing or being creative inside of other people's boxes, right? It is not the ideal precondition for flow, but it is absolutely necessary to learn how to like give in to that challenge and rise to that challenge. And whether or not you care about what you're doing, you certainly care about the challenge of it and rising to meet any challenge. And that's, you know, there are ways around that. Um, what's important is that you create conditions where you can really pay attention to what you're doing. Right. I mean, and no better example of that is the extreme athletes, because if they're not paying attention, they may never get a chance to pay attention again. They could be dead. And that, that's what I found fascinating about your book is all the examples of extreme athletes where, I mean, you, you really have your life on the line. It's not like playing basketball or even something like MMA or something along those lines. And, and then I'm, so that, one, that makes me wonder how, how much danger or novelty plays a role. Yeah, cause, so yeah I was going to ask you about that. About, we, it's a great question. And we talked about flow triggers, right? One of the flow, one of the triggers for flow is what's known as a rich environment, which is a fancy way of saying lots of novelty, lots of complexity, lots of unpredictability. All three things grab hold of our attention. All three things force the brain to release dopamine, and all three things drive us into flow. And everybody, by the way, has had this experience. Have you felt awe, right? You look up at the night sky, the vastness of the sky, the billions of stars, or you see the Grand Canyon and you get struck by, like, geologic time for the first time, right? And the reality seems to pause and you get sucked into the moment. That mechanism that gets sucked in the moment, that's the front end of a flow state. Awe is kind of the front end of a flow state. It's what happens when we encounter overwhelming complexity and the brain can't process it at a subconscious level because um, our working memory isn't big enough and it kicks it over to the subconscious for processing and we get sucked into a flow state. Yeah. Now, Mike was just talking about the, the extreme athletes as well. One, one of the things I noticed in one of your speeches, you were speaking about just how what really got you into this and really looking deeper into this is that, you know, it was from a life-threatening experience that really kind of got you interested in this topic. Can you just expound on that as well? Like when you're talking about surfing, as a matter of fact, it was just an experience that you had from Lyme disease, I believe, and, and going surfing. And that's pretty much what got you really into this topic of getting into flow. Yeah. So I was 30 years old uh, and uh, I got Lyme disease and I spent about three years in bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
if you don't know what Lyme is, it's sort of the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. Mm. So my functions were totally reduced. I not, not only was I too sick to walk across the room, you know, my brain wasn't working right. I was dyslexic. I couldn't count. I had no short-term memory, no long-term memory. I was hallucinating. It was bad. And I was pulled off drugs as the doctors. My stomach lines started bleeding out. There was nothing more anybody could do for me. Nobody knew if I was ever going to get any better. And I was, you know, appropriately, I believe, suicidal because I was only going to be a burden for my friends and my family from that point on. Mm. And in the middle of this kind of cloud of darkness, a friend of mine showed up in my apartment. I was living in Los Angeles, and she demanded that we go surfing. And she wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and was a total pain in my ass. And after hours of this, I was... Exhausted. I was like, you know what? Let's go surfing today. I can always kill myself tomorrow. <laughs> yes, you know, anything to get this woman to shut up at, at that point. And they, you know, they had to walk me to the car and they drove me out to Sunset Beach. Which, if you know anything about surfing, LA, it's the wimpiest, friendliest beginner wave in the world. Okay. They gave me a board the size of a Cadillac, and I was, you know, walked me out like holding my elbows again, walked me out to the break and put me on the board. And there about thirty seconds, and a wave came. And muscle memory took over. I spun my board around a couple times and popped it to my feet. Now, I, I knew how to surf. I'd surf previously. It's been a long time since I'd spin on a board because I'd nearly died in a, in a way, big wave accident in Indonesia near the ground. And so I wanted nothing else to do with this board. But, you know, turned around, popped up to my feet, and popped up into a total crazy other dimension, right? It, my senses were peaking, and I felt like a panoramic vision and, you know, Time was slowed to this absolute crawl. The whole thing was bizarre. It felt quasi-mystical. And the craziest part was I felt amazing. I felt great. I felt healthy. I felt alive for the first time in three years. felt so good. Caught four more waves. After the fifth wave, I was done. I was disassembled. They drove me home. They put me into bed. People had to bring me food for the next couple of weeks because I couldn't walk to my kitchen to make a meal. But on the day I could walk again, I went back to the ocean. I did it again. And over about six months, when the only thing I was doing differently in my life um, was surfing, and most everything else I was doing was lying on the couch and moaning. Um, I went from about 10% functionality to about 80% functionality. And the first question was, what the hell's going on, right? Surfing is not a known cure for chronic autoimmune conditions. And second of all, Lyme's only fatal if it gets into your brain. I've got a science background. I don't have quasi-mystical experiences while surfing. What's flinkier <laughs> than that, right? And so I was pretty sure I'm having these crazy experiences because the disease has gotten into my brain. Even though I was feeling better, I was dying. So I lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on with me. What I discovered is these crazy states had a name, right, flow states, and that, you know, I very quickly realized that the same state that had helped me get from subpar, really subpar, back to normal, to helping normal people go all the way up into Superman. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know, by the way, since we started with the neurochemistry, why that happened, what, so all the neurochemicals that show up in flow are big immune system boosters. So right. That's part of it. The other thing they do and this is critically important. So in the flow, as you kick into flow, the body's filled with all these stress hormones, norepinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol. There's a nitric oxide release. It's a global gaseous signaling molecule in the body. It's sort of everywhere. And when that happens, all the stress hormones flood out and all the positive dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, endorphins, et cetera, flood in. In other words, flow resets the nervous system to zero. It calms it all the way back down. Any autoimmune condition is a nervous system gone haywire. So by resetting it to zero and then boosting the immune system, I was creating space to start healing. And then you haven't had any problems with this since then, huh? Just complete recovery. I don't, 
I yeah, I did. I don't thermoregulate quite as well as I used to. Huh. I don't see quite as well as I used to, and um, I don't recover from you know a, a weekend of skiing hard as fast as I used to. But I'm also 47 years old, <laughs> so you know how much of this is residual line and how much is this the fact that I'm 17 years older than I was when this happened. Yeah, you know, right. it's an open it's an open it's an open question. But no, I perform at a pretty high level, you know, as a writer and as an athlete. Um, right. On a kind of you know on a kind of weekly you know basis daily basis almost um, and uh, so yeah no resi- no real residuals. Hmm. Do you find much carryover between your different skill sets? So for example, you're a great writer and you're able to get in the flow when you write. Does that enable you to get in the flow when you do some of your athletic activities? Yeah, you absolutely lit onto one of the one of the coolest things about flow and. Um, it's actually, we'll go back to the, the guys who hate what they do for a living. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, I'll tie it all together. <laughs> Flow is a skill, right? And the brain is plastic, right? It learns. And it learns by creating new patterns in the brain. So training the brain up and flow in one skill set crosses over. A. And B, the effects of flow can outlast the state. So Teresa Mobley at Harvard figured out creativity is massively boosted in flow. Some studies have it up to like 500 to 700% boosted above normal. Really outrageous numbers. Um, that heightened creativity uh, outlasts the zone, sometimes by a day or two. So it, it, that creativity will bleed over into your daily life. But the more flow I have as a writer, the more flow I find on the mountain, the more flow I find on the mountain, the more flow I have as a writer. One of the things that, you know, if, and you, by the way, if you look under the hood of the action sport athletes, a lot of them have something creative they do in their spare time. They play music. A lot of them play music, take photographs, or make films. Right. So um, that, that, makes, that makes me wonder if if someone, let's say someone has a job they hate, but they have hobbies where they, they well, that's, love, their, yeah, they that's love exactly. their hobbies and they're able to get into a flow state there. I wonder if that will eventually make them realize, hey, I'm doing the wrong thing. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, 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 what you're talking about, there's actually a word for it. It's called the high perch experience. Huh. And what it really means is that when you're in flow, right, it's the best possible version of yourself, right? And you get this sense of, if this is possible, well, what else else might be possible? It gives you a right. really elevated vista with which to look out over your life. And because most of our emotional processing is totally shut down in flow, flow is actually it, it, the most addictive state on earth, but always in hindsight, in the state itself, Emotions are almost shut down completely. Self has disappeared. And that's, emotions are there to modify behavior. In flow, flow is called flow because every decision, every action leads perfectly, seamlessly, fluidly, flowily to the next, right? Right. Flow feels flowy. That's where the term comes from. And um, as a result, you don't have to modify behavior. You don't need those emotions, so they're shut down, right? It's wasted processing is being used elsewhere when you're in flow. So it's an emotionally neutral state that is, you know, in hindsight, sort of towards the tail end when emotions start to come back online, the most pleasurable experience on earth. But it's actually emotionally neutral when we're in the middle of it. But back to your point, right, you get in this high perch experience, and I see this, you know, at the Flow Genome Project, we do open to the public courses, online courses, Flow Fundamentals courses, and I see this a lot where people are stuck in dead-end jobs, and we will tell them, Find a hobby. We have a free flow profile on our website. It tells you which direction you are most likely to find flow in your life. 
meaning we are not all as susceptible to the same flow triggers, right? We have preferences individually, and some of them is nature, some is nurture, but whatever. The flow profile says, look in this direction. So, I, you know, I've got guys who are pediatricians suddenly playing the ukulele or, you know, MMI guys starting to take up watercolors because it's something else that produces flow. Right, right. And it bleeds over into their primary. And with guys in dead-end jobs, what happens is, the, the vision sort of bleeds over, and usually what I, I've noticed is guys find hybrid things, like they take up watercolors, they get so into it that somehow they find a way to move it into accounting and what they were doing before, <laughs> and there's some new crazy career that comes out the back end. I've seen a lot of that. I can't imagine anyone who does accounting in flow. <laughs> and that's a skill. I'm making up. I'm making up these. I'm making up examples as I'm going along. By the way, they're not real examples. They're not real examples. No, no, no. I was okay. On that, I was spinning yards because I, I, you know, I'd have to go back into our database and figure out who did. No, what. I was hoping no. you were going to give an example. I know because I'm thinking about my, C- thinking about my CPA. I'm like, nah, he's definitely not in flow. <laughs> but I will tell you at a, at a really personal level. Uh huh. It's what I did with my life. Like, hmm. I do three things primarily. I, I, I'm involved as a writer. I'm involved, you know, as an action forward athlete, throwing myself down, down mountains. I run an animal sanctuary. Altruism right. produces flow. Yeah. Altruism produces a flow state known as helper's high. It was discovered by Alan Lukes, who founded Big Brothers Big Sisters back in the 90s. Right. It's a very peculiar flow state. It's a multi-day flow state as opposed to usually like an hour, an hour and a half for a normal experience. So it's strange. No, it's not completely understood. But altruism produces flow as well. So I've tried to surround my life by, you know, by these same kind of mechanisms. And I've packed my life with flow triggers. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what I wanted to get into next is how, how have you used these, what you've learned from studying flow to help animals? Because you and your wife won't run a chihuahua sanctuary in New Mexico. New Mexico? Yeah, we do. We, we do hospice care and special needs care um, for small dogs. And, um, you know, we really wanted to work with populations that nobody wants to work with, and nobody wants to work with small dogs, even though they're youth, the most euthanized dog in America. Nobody wanted to work with hospice care or special needs because you get very attached to animals that are bound to die, and they don't live very long, et cetera, et cetera. But we have a healing methodology that is built around flow as well. And you, uh, you, everything from, you know, we try to get these states moving through our dogs. We try to do it for a couple of reasons. One, the health and the medical benefits are astounding. Most of our dogs come directly from shelters and vets, and, and you know they come with warnings like a month, two months to live, and our dogs live for years. Um, some of this is nutrition, but a lot of it is flow. And the other thing, flow is really fundamental to social bonding. All the neurochemicals that show up in flow also underpin social bonding. Dopamine and norepinephrine are romantic love, endorphins are maternal bonding, um, serotonin, keeps you calm and underpins everything from kind of general attachment to infatuation and on and on. When you get these chemicals flowing through animals, it bonds them into our pack. Because we live family style, there nobody's caged, and there's 35 animals running around, we need everybody bonded to the pack. And once they're bonded to the pack, they get all those good kind of oxytocin, all those good social chemicals, which further burst their immune system. So it's a big part of how, you know, how our healing methodology works and why it's so successful. Now, do all these animals just stay with you at the sanctuary, or are you looking to adopt them out? We do uh, three sets of things. One-third of the, our, our animals are hospice cases. They're, they're going to they're gonna 
die with us. Right. A third of our cases are special needs animals, so we'll work with them for a couple of years usually to get them ready for adoption. And you know, some of them we can adopt out; others are too problematic, and they those end up becoming what our rescuers call lifers. <laughs> and then a third of our dogs are younger, or slightly healthier, or you know, adoptable dogs uh, that you know that we've gotten that were just on death row and you know really in need of help. And where's, where can people find more information about the organization? RanchoDeChihuahua.org. Okay, cool. And you have a book on this topic too, right? I do, A uh, Small Furry Prayer, which also, by the way, talks, uh, talks a lot about flow. Hmm. Um, there's, there's, there's really interesting, you know, the, the question of where did flow evolve from, where did yeah. it come from, right? right? So a lot of it seems that it, it evolved because we hunted down our prey by running them down. And so anybody who got a little more pain relief along the way or better pattern recognition or any of those things would get more meat. Simultaneously, there's a second theory that's actually got some substance behind it that shows that dogs also can get into flow, and they can get into flow states with humans hmm. across the species lines. It's group flow. And one of the things that happens when you're in group flow is it feels like telekinetic communication. It's really massively jacked up pattern recognition, focused attention and information processing. But in, if you read quotes about it, there's a really famous Bill Russell quote from Second Wind um, where he talks about those moments when you know the whole team was in flow and it just felt like they were psychically linked. Right. Well, right. Humans used to hunt down their prey by running it down with dogs, big packs of humans and dogs. And we had to communicate across species. And one thing I learned, because I go running with my pack of dogs, you know, almost daily, and when you run with a pack of dogs, if you're not in group flow, you're tripping all over each other. <laughs> I mean, for sure. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've gone headfirst into cactuses. It's bad. It's yeah. bad. But, like, yeah. once it clicks into gear, it's like, you know, it's the same sort of mechanism that drives kind of any kind of group behavior, flocking yeah. in birds or in fish, right? right? You, you right. lock in, and it's massively heightened pattern recognition and things along those lines. But if, if you're kneeling with cross-species communication needed to bring down a buffalo, right, and anybody screws up and they're going to lose a limb or get trampled or have some other, you know, ailment that is fatal in those times, right? We don't have medicine back on the belt. So right. you want this kind of coordination, and it's kind of one of the only ways we could have survived that way. So there's a second group of thinkers who think that flow may have evolved as it, it may have showed up first as kind of pain relief. But what drove it so far and deep into our species was this, the need for cross-species communication when we were hunting with wolves. Mm. It seems like that hasn't changed too much in today's society. Now we're not chasing buffalo. We're all chasing each other. And it seems like if we're not all in sync, we're kind of all tripping over each other. So that's why you have so much of this miscommunication going on in the world, even in corporate America as well. And I know you've referenced um, James um, Slavic, you know, speaking about that as well, by using group flow with corporations in order to build these companies as well. Can you expand on and that? And you're seeing, yeah, you're, you're totally right about everything you just said. And you're seeing a lot of really kind of top tier companies now are really playing with interesting kind of group flow hacks. Some of them don't know what they're doing, meaning they don't know that there's this kind of macroscopic flow state terminology. Others absolutely are, are, are aware of it. Companies like Patagonia, Microsoft, Ericsson, when they were around, and Toyota, they had a flow kind of woven into their corporate methodology, but Facebook is doing really cool group flow experiments. They don't really know what they're doing <laughs> quite yet, but they're creating, you know, really interesting conditions for group flow, and the interesting trade trade-offs are going on. Some companies are saying, hey, we want group flow more than individual flow, and there's a lot, there's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interest, and it's an exciting area. 
Maybe that's why people are so addicted to Facebook. You know, they're posting selfies every five <laughs> minutes because you know, <laughs> they're getting some kind of they're they're getting some kind of flow state or maybe a very minor one. It's a big experiment well, for Facebook on their people. Yeah, I can, their... I can I I could actually speak to that if you want. If you care, oh, yeah, please. please do. <laughs> there's, there's actual so we know, and there's lots of data on this that. For example, video games, a really good indicator of a successful video game is does it put users into flow? Mm-hmm. We know that the best websites, the websites with the highest stickiness, right? I want to stay here and linger, and slipperiness, right. which is right. slipperiness is the ease with which you move between online experiences, that's also governed by flow. So on a certain level, the lower level, the best websites seem to be websites that can generate low-grade flow states and, and how they harness your attention and things along those lines. What's going on with Facebook is totally different. That's, we have a fundamental safety and security system, right? And one of the ways we feel safe is we have lots of connections between people, mm-hmm. and we, we also feel safe by kind of elevating our status. And that's, I mean, it's a dopamine high, don't get me wrong, but that seems to be the addiction with Facebook. It's also the, the downside, right? People find Facebook for the very first time. Remember when, you know, relatives find Facebook for the very first time, and they get really excited for the first two weeks. And what's exciting them is they feel so much safer in the world because there's all these connections. But about two weeks in, you realize, hey, wait a minute, these aren't real connections. A like on Facebook doesn't really mean much in the real world. And there's this downer, right? And it's a crash. You're coming off a dopamine high this is low so like there's there's a social media crater um that that follows on the back end that i think is really interesting now that said by the way that's just dopamine right that's where we are today technologies are getting better and better so we're going to have websites by the way that can produce greater complements of neurochemicals just like we're getting video games that are able to do that that are so we're going to get closer and closer well, just like the website second life Stephen, right are you familiar with that where mm-hmm. these virtual worlds people yeah. go into and then you know sure I, I, there's, there's a movie on netflix which talks about this these married couple not married to each other they're they were married and they went into this world and they ended up leaving their significant others <laughs> maybe they <laughs> the were in such a flow state together well, you, i mean you know you're so i mean you're you're poking at something uh that's interesting and, and philip rosedale who's the creator of second life and i have talked yeah. about this at, at length over the years uh-huh. um and by the way if you're ever wondering who the smartest guy in the room is it's philip rosedale yeah <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just say that right now. As far as I can tell, it's Philip Rosedale. But uh, one of the things that's interesting is virtual reality is getting better and better, right? The Oculus technology is all advancing exponentially. It's moving really fast, and it's yeah. getting much better at putting us in deeper and deeper flow states. Now, one of the things that's interesting about flow is it's not just the most addictive, pleasurable, hedonic experience you can have on Earth. It's also the most meaningful, right? People... Um, and this is hey, chicks like me, highest finding from back in the 60s and 70s. The people who have the most flow in their lives are the people who score off the charts on life satisfaction, deep, meaningful lives, right? Mm-hmm. So what that means on the front end is this is important for anybody who wants a meaningful life, right? But what it means on the back end is we're creating virtual experiences that are more fun and more meaningful than regular experiences. And we're going to be able to have them at will. And that's going to produce a very fundamental shift in society that a lot of people don't see coming. Yeah, that's a little scary though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it kind of reminds me of Total Recall. Remember that Schwarzenegger movie where you just go, you go to this place and they just implant memories. It's an interesting. <laughs> it, it, it certainly opens up a world that it, I, I write a lot about this kind of stuff for my Forbes blog, and it certainly opens up a very interesting world. Here's the flip side. You're totally right. There's the Total Recall paranoid scary part, right? 
Here's another side of it. We know that video games are phenomenal for delivering education. Kids learn really well for video games when we actually bother to do it. Usually these days it's tangential learning. It's like I had to learn about 18th century history to attack this, you know, army in whatever game. But it's, you know, very high learning, very high learning retention. One of the reasons is lots of neurochemicals get produced during video games, lots of flow. The more neurochemicals that show up, the more something gets coded into long-term memory. So in studies by DARPA, for example, they find that learning and flow is accelerated by almost 50%. Um, really, really radically you know, amplified learning. So what we can start to do is make learning-based video games that produce flow, and suddenly we have a totally addictive, totally scalable learning platform. And if Google or Facebook have their way, everybody's going to be online by 2020. Smartphones, tablets, all these things, they're dropping exponentially in price, right? right? More and more people are getting them. So suddenly, we are looking at a totally addictive, totally distributed, totally individualized, personalized edu global education system that's flow-based. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're going that way now. I mean, with Google Glass, even that. So even when you try to put down your phone and get away from your computer, you're still not away from your computer. It's sitting right there on top of your nose now when you're walking around. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like yeah. they're making sure that you're staying connected no matter what. I mean, you got now you're coming out with these, you know, Google Watch and all these things that we thought were like funny little gadgets when we watch shows like Maxwell Smart and Inspector Gadget. These things are happening now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you something. I have a book coming out next May called Tomorrowland. Mm -hmm. And the book is... It's, it's all, everything's been rewritten, but for 20 years, my beat as a journalist, one of my main beats, was those moments in time when science fiction became science fact. So this is a collection of 20 years of my writings on the topic, and one thing that, you know, amazed me when I put the collection together and, I, you know, and, and was rewriting this stuff is, it's literally, it's everything you can think of, right? It's every one of the major science fiction tropes from the 20th century, no matter how big or small, they're all... You know, they're all here. I want my shoe phone, by the way. My Mac <laughs> yeah, shoe I was phone. just thinking about that, too. <laughs> okay, I'm still waiting for the shoe phone. My <laughs> wife actually wants the shoe phone with a knife, like the Maverick knife that comes out oh. in front. She's a little more aggressive than I am. But uh, hey, yeah, they, they, they make shoe phones. Whoever makes a shoe phone is going to be wealthy. Like every, if you can make it fashionable, every Dude. woman around. Oh man, that's a wrap. <laughs> if, I, if, if I could, if I could take off my phone and start talking through my shoe in, in airports and start talking to my shoe, my Louboutin oh my god, phone? yeah, <laughs> I will. I will suddenly have space on either side of me without having to do anything. <laughs> but it's interesting that you bring it up. I mean, let's think about it. When first time we saw Star Wars in what 1977, and you see the hologram of Princess Leia from R2D2, it was like, okay, that's science fiction. But now now, two year, you know, two years ago, you had Tupac performing at Coachella via, <laughs> you know, hologram, you know, from the grave. So, I mean, everybody thought that was the We've most got... fascinating thing ever. I'm like, dude, it's a hologram. And then you got Michael Jackson <laughs> yeah. performing from a hologram. I'm like, he's dead. These, everybody was like, oh my God, Michael Jackson performing. I'm like, he's dead. Got to Stop. Build stadium for a hologram. Exactly. Like, are, are you serious right now? <laughs> so. It also raises all kinds of interesting questions about like meaning making. Because yeah. a hologram of Michael Jackson filled the stadium. It was yeah. enough, right? And But we're getting, I mean, you know, we're getting towards, we're moving towards downloadable consciousness, mind downloading, right? This is super science fiction and way out there, but a lot of people are working on it. Different ways to record the information the brain processes during a lifetime, right? And people have already done it with different senses and things like that. They're trying to put it together so we can actually kind of re record people's consciousnesses, their beings. Are we anywhere near there yet? No, it's a ways, ways out.
but we're going to, that Michael Jackson hologram is going to get a little more real and a little more real and a little more real. And, yeah. you know, that's where we're, that's, that, that starts to get really strange. Exactly. It starts to really point the fact that, you know, reality really is just this thing that's very, you know, subjective. Yeah. You know, he's just like, well, you know, your reality is not my reality, but it doesn't mean that either one is wrong or right. So it, so then it becomes very hokey when you start thinking about it now. But then, like you said, it's becoming, like you said, real. Sooner or later, it's going to be that way. And we're not going to know what's real to... anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we don't know what, what's real already. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so your, your senses gather roughly 400 billion inputs a second. That's the information streaming into your brain. Your consciousness, meaning the stuff you construct reality out of, is at maximum made up of 2,000 bits of information. Hmm. So you're going from 400 billion bits of information a second down to 2,000. So we live in a massive, 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 massive reduction of reality as is. Yeah, right. And everybody's 2,000 bits are different. Yeah, exactly. So you're going from a big, massive NASA-sized computer down to a Texas Instruments calculator from fourth grade in, in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, that's right. At the very best. I don't know how old you how old you are. You may be like third grade. I know. Someone just <laughs> said, like, Texas who? Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, exactly. Texas who? <laughs> 41. I still, I still remember those. No, uh, I'm, cu- I'm curious, Stephen, now with, with group flow, let's say – People really get into that flow state, but only when in a group. So they're in a group class or they go to a Tony Robbins seminar and they're jumping up and down and sharing their personal lives with strangers and they're in this flow state. And now they're addicted to going to group environments Mm. and they're not able to bring that over to individual flow. Is that is that line of thinking correct? Have you seen that? that? That's that's interesting. Um, And I've never I've actually honest God, I've never thought about it, but you're probably right. And, you know, for example, we know that people prefer, there's studies that show that people like group flow more than individual flow. So flow is like the best we can feel. Group flow is the best of the best. It's yeah. what we, it's the thing we're most addicted to. And, you know, it's, uh, that's interesting. I, I, and I don't even know what to say about it. We, I mean, what, what, I, what I can say is we, you know, it's not like group flow is a black box anymore. We've got really good research data on group flow at this point, it's, there's, it's in Rise of Superman. It's based on, you know, a lot of our thinking on the, on this stuff is based on Keith Sawyer, who uh, is a psychologist at the University of Washington, St. Louis, and uh, studied under Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at the University of Chicago and kind of named group flow. And you know, Csikszentmihalyi thought it was what would happen. He would get these all these stories about surgeons talking about performing a difficult operation. The whole team was behaving like a hive mind, like an amoeba. They were all they all everything was perfectly like ballet, right? right? He thought that was a bunch of individuals getting into flow. Keith Sawyer said, No, I don't think so. I think it's an emergent group property. Let's try to find out. He spent fifteen years videotaping Second City television and improv uh jazz musicians, really talented improv jazz combos. And developed this very kind of interesting frame-by-frame video analysis that sort of allowed him to work backwards to the moment that, like, a massive jump in creativity happens, right? What happens when a band finds their groove? Everybody in the audience can recognize that moment. Or when a bunch of improv players, the story suddenly snaps into place and suddenly everybody's in the same scene and creativity goes through the roof and the comedy goes through the roof and blah, blah, blah. So that was using that as kind of his indicator. He mapped it, and he came up with... Ten triggers for group flow, right? Ten things that precipitate group flow. 
So not only do we have triggers for individual flow, we have an understanding of the triggers for group flow. Now, I will say flat out completely honestly, understanding of the neurobiology of group flow has a real ways to go. There's a lot of giant mysteries here. Obviously, it's deeply important to corporate America for a lot of reasons. Um, it's probably very important to education and a whole bunch of other things, but it's a mystery, right? We're at the front end of trying to unpack it, and it's going to be tricky. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, do, I mean, you think, do you think that it kind of goes back to just there, – there are studies even in psychology where you just talk about where human beings really have this and that need to, like, connect with other human beings. And we function a lot better when we're making that connection, just like we were talking about earlier with the altruism and, and things like that. And we're right. happiest when we're connecting with other individuals, which is kind of kind of lends itself to the whole reason why Facebook took off the way it did or whatever, because everyone's just trying to feel like, okay, I, I hope it's not just me that feels this way, thinks this way or whatever. It's kind of this tribalism that's been going on since the beginning of time. And do you think that that could be part of the reason why group flow works the way it does? Because it just feels better. I don't know when you're in a group and you're working on a project or doing something together. And, and also it helps with responsibility. Do you think as far as like if things go wrong, then, you know, it can't all just be blamed on you. If you're just the individual that's coming up with this, if it's a group, you can find some other people to lay the blame on. <laughs> Honestly, you're, and you're totally right. And if you want to kind of peel back at one level, right, we in the 20th century, we really believed that we were survival of the fittest machines, right? Evolution was competitive. And a lot of stuff along those lines, right? We're now discovering, hey, wait a minute, evolution tends to be very cooperative. And sure, on a certain level, we're survival machines. But what seems to be most important to us and what seems to be what we're hardwired for is innovation. Mm. And innovation at a level no other species has been able to match. And that's what the science shows, right? Human specialness, when you look at like all the things we thought that set us apart, language, tool use, empathy, on and on and on, the only thing that's left is kind of this deep innovation. And we, you know, we have an innovation system. It's a very deep desire. It's very, very fundamental. So here's the simple question. Are you a better innovator alone or with a crowd? Right. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So more brains as crowdsourcing shows, as you know, all these kind of open source projects show, on a lot of levels... You get, you get better results. So we're better collectively, we're more innovative collectively, and of course we're driven that way. Yeah. yeah. That, that, just, that just makes me still wonder about that point of if you're, if you're only able to get into flow in a group, then that may impede your, your individual ability to get into flow, but maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you're not trying to do anything as a single unit. Maybe, maybe you're more <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable in a group. It, exactly. it I mean, it depends, right? It's not an either or, right? Yeah. I can play in a band. I can sing in a church choir. I can take part in a great brainstorming session. Right, right. And right. there's group flow. I can, you know, and, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll go out skiing with a group of guys, and in the beginning, you know, while we're all getting our, our, you know, up to speed, it's about seeking out individual flow. But there's a point that we, you know, we click together and suddenly we're doing 40 miles an hour through the trees right. as a group when, you know, guys are flying in front of each other. So one thing can lead to the other. Um, and, it, you know, and certainly, you know, certainly you get, you know, you get that sense. And the other, the, the other thing as well is this isn't extremely well validated, but flow appears to be contagious. Yeah. Which is not surprising. All of our emotions are contagious, right? right? This is essentially our emotions are high wild neurofacial expressions, the way mirror neurons work. We mimic other people's facial expressions, which means we end up feeling their feelings. That's how empathy works, right? right? 
and you know the same system is fired up in flow. So you get a really you know you get a really deep empathy empathy you know alongside all the kind of you know team building neurochemicals that that show up, and one thing can lead to the, the next. Yeah, and maybe you know it's just my opinion, but maybe it's also about at that time what's your what's the need for your particular skill set at that time when the group's all working together so if you bring something to the table you might not necessarily want to be or need to be the leader at that time but maybe you bring something to the table that others don't and maybe sometimes and you have to the cell has a responsibility but it's going to take more than that cell to make your body function it has to work with the other cells in order to make and that's why what happens if you get when you get disease when that cell starts breaking down then all it becomes contagious the other cells start breaking down yeah. and next thing you know you're sick you have disease that's i guess that's a metaphoric way of kind of putting it out there and you're absolutely correct now on a, on another gear here are you familiar with any supplement nutrition supplements or medications that may enable flow. I mean, there's some brain chemical, uh, brain drugs out there like modifinol, which are pretty powerful stuff. Nothing along the lines of what we saw in that movie Limitless, Limitless. Bradley yeah. Cooper. But I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if technology is moving in that direction where smart drugs are eventually going to get to that point. So, smart drugs, no. Technology, yes. So let me let me back this up. We talked about three different triggers for flow. There's neural anatomical t- triggers for flow. The prefrontal cortex shuts down in flow. We can use transcranial magnetic stimulation already mm-hmm. to, to, to pull that trigger. It's not a total deep flow state. It's one of the elements, right? But we can do that. Neurofeedback. We, uh, we're, we're just, a, the Flow Genome Project is just announcing a partnership with Sense Labs, and we're developing the first neurofeedback-based flow protocol. And we're, you know, we've moved it along a little bit. So neurofeedback has been, and it's been shown in research done by the U.S. military and private, uh, private research foundations, um, to be able to trigger flow. Neurochemically, we don't even know the order, the cascade exactly. We have some good ideas. Is it the same in everybody? We have no idea. So mm-hmm. precursors, let me give you an example. It's very hard for dopamine and serotonin to exist in the brain together, right? What happens in flow is serotonin shows up on the back end of right. the flow state as the dopamine is waning. Yeah. So what do you take? Dopamine precursors or serotonin precursors? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. So that's one problem. But I will give you one crazy secret that, that there is one thing you can do. You cannot preload, but when you are in a flow state, if you eat chocolate, the anandamide in the chocolate reacts with the anandamide in flow, and it lengthens the state. Just, cool. You just made me a happy man. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. That explains <laughs> yeah. why I'm in so, flow so often. <laughs> yeah. I, and by the way, you can't preload. I've tried. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how much chocolate I eat. Oh, that's it does not up the amount of flow in my life. I'm sorry ah. to say. Yeah, right? It's going to be an intro workout supplement. Exactly. You're in the middle yeah, of but, it. So. It's like, I'm in flow really now. I'm in the middle of it. Let me get this in. I got my flow chocolate, man. Come on. <laughs> I hear a new product that, idea now. <laughs> yeah, and if you're curious, um, that's Michael Pollan who wrote the Botany of Desire. That yeah, right. Of, yeah. right. He, so he, he got very interested in anandamide, um, which is the psychoactive in, in marijuana. It's the same psychoactive that shows up in flow, right? Endogenous right. versus exogenous versions. But, um, so in, so he, this was, this is, I'm spinning off his research, but he's got a bunch of different talks online where he talks about, talking about using chocolate to kind of, well, A, lengthen a marijuana high, but B, it works the same and slow because you have the same chemical. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a great combo. I'm going to say, you're making a lot of people happy right now. <laughs> I'm not. Marijuana gives you the illusion. That you're, <laughs> exactly. Nothing, nothing <laughs> prescriptive here. You understand I'm just talking about the facts. <laughs> 
I think when you're high on marijuana, you you're like, man, I'm in flow, but you're just, it's just the illusion of flow. Everyone else is looking at you like, like you're, dude, you're high. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now I want to switch gears, but I know you got to get going too. But I just wanted to switch gears and ask you a few questions about some unrelated stuff here. You've you've talked about GMOs in other interviews and in other books, and there's. You've basically alluded to that there's a lot of misconceptions about GMOs, and that's a hot topic in our industry. People are, all, are constantly going on about avoid GMOs. They're going to cause all kind of health issues and so forth. What's your take on it? All right. So, yeah, most people, they don't know what they're afraid of. And so GMOs are, or the, the, the GE is the current term that people like, but what essentially genetically modified crops, all that's happening here is we're getting more precise. It used to be, right, I could take seeds, I can throw them in the bottom of a nuclear reactor, I can bombard them with all kinds of radiation and mutate them, and then I can sell them, these mutations, as organic seeds. Right. Okay? GMO is a more precise way of targeting which, which genes we want to you know, mess with. We're messing with them anyways, whether it's plant breeding or radiation bombardment or any of the other things that go on and are labeled organic. There have been over a billion GMO meals served. Not one case of illness has come up. What I will say is that the first round of the technology, which is what most people are familiar with, had some problems and, you know, a lot of them were, you know, away around the way Monsanto behaved. Right. And a lot of the fears that were kind of grounded in that were are actually ungrounded, meaning like there's a lot of fears around, oh, my God, these guys are patenting seeds and they're going to kind of lock up all this stuff. It turns out genetically, genetically modifying organisms is a fairly easy technology. You can do it pretty much in a lab in any country in the world, and they do, right? So there's no that – all that stuff was, was, was a lot of paranoia that was misguided. Um, and, you know, we're moving into, you know, a lot more intelligence in our crops. This doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have to, you know, pay attention to the safeguards. Of course we do. We're messing around with biodiversity. There's a lot of stuff we need to pay attention to in terms of effects. But as of now, anytime we've looked for harmful properties, we haven't found them. And instead, we found massively beneficial properties. Now, what about, so, I mean, basically, Monsanto can't own this technology is what you're saying is that it's fairly ubiquitous. It's very ubiquitous. Okay. Yeah, there was a lot of fear that it, this would end up, you know, being a technology controlled by big business, right? And that's a, that's a scary fear because you don't want you don't want big business controlling the world's food production, right? Exactly. Right. right. That's not a safe place to be. Turns out the technology is really, 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 you know, pretty straightforward, and you know, all the interfaces with genetics are accelerating exponentially. Getting moving into synthetic biology. I mean, you have to also understand is that we can argue all we want about GMOs, and that's where we are today. Yeah. But synthetic biology is moving at you know biotechnology as a whole is five times the speed of Moore's law. Right. Really fast. Right. So yeah. where we're going tomorrow is organisms totally created from scratch. Hmm. Right. GMOs is we're modifying stuff that at least exists on this planet. Right. <laughs> we, I mean, we we've got they've created new letters in the genetic alphabet. Hmm. Right, they've added new chromosomes that never before existed. There are two new ones um, out there. This is this is where we're moving. So, so what you're saying is X Men is going to be a reality soon. 
<laughs> we're going to have real mutants out there. <laughs> People may want to become mutants. They may they may want to take some of this technology. I mean, you kind of look at some of the athletes and, that are out there today and the way they compare to the athletes 30, 40 years ago, that's right. not too far-fetched. I mean, look at the average size of a football player like in Jim Brown's days. You put Jim Brown on the field today at that same age that he was back then when he was the greatest – he would get mowed over by these kids now. <laughs> so well, it's also, I mean, it's what you see in action adventure sports, right? I mean, when I started covering these topics in the early 90s, the first time I was ever in the mountains with actual pro extreme skiers, quote unquote, mm-hmm. it didn't look like skiing. It didn't look like any sport I was familiar with. It, right. it looked like magic. What they were doing <laughs> didn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, like right. when Michael Jordan hung in the air for that extra second, yeah. you know, on his yeah. way to the dunk. That didn't make sense in a way that you kind of you went, okay, that didn't make sense. I saw that. It seemed to defy the laws of physics or whatever. I'm going to go with it. When I, what I saw in action adventure sports in the early 90s was, no, no, this is, this is totally in violation. It's like, you know, I woke up one morning, walked in my kitchen, found my mother floating above the table. <laughs> kind of magic, right? And it only progressed. That was only the beginning of the revolution. We've had near exponential growth since then, right? We've gone from a thousand year old sport surfing, right? 25 feet is up biggest wave anybody's ever surfed from 480 to 1996 and above that everybody thinks it's impossible and today we're pushing into waves that are 100 feet tall that's insane no it's unbelievable now i got one last question for you here and then we'll wrap it up you talk about in vitro meat in another book and do you think that's the future of meat production do you think factory farming will eventually fall to the wayside and that meat will actually be grown in the lab i sure hope so yeah me too. I sure hope so. I mean, you know, you can, whichever way you come down on this, right? Meat may, may not be murder, but it's definitely murdering the planet, right? You right. look at, look at, I mean, look at the cattle industry. The ratio of energy input to beef output is 64 to 1. Yeah. In a world where we've got massive water shortages and massive water scarcity and drought in California ad nauseum, there's enough water in an adult steer to float a U.S. Navy. Yeah, it's one of the fire. biggest <laughs> environmental disasters that no one talks about. That movie, Total- Cowspiracy, really got into that. And it, that, was, that was a difficult movie to get out there because of all the but dangers involved. I mean, that there were times where high ups in the cattle industry were threatening the lives of certain environmentalists. Yeah, it's a, I mean, and, and I have to tell you, by the way, the technology is here today. Let's, yeah. let's be clear on this. We've got the tissue engineering puzzle is all but solved. The question is how do you scale it, right? right it's right. very energy intensive to do this. And, you know, the good news is... So how does it work, if you're, if you're familiar? How, how exactly is, are you making meat in a lab? You're, you're using stem cells. Okay. You're just mm. reproducing and reproducing, and then... You're, what's tricky is the actual architecture and the density of the beef itself because there's a lot of veins and things giving structure to beef. So they, how to make it mimic that so it tastes the same right. is, has been a tricky part. But here's the other upside. No matter what we do, steak is never going to be the best thing for you, right? But with in vitro meat, you can do whatever you want. We can... Mm-hmm pack it full of amino acids. Right, we can, right. you know, suddenly steak becomes salmon. We can do the impossible. Yeah. We can make ha- fast food hamburgers that are good for you. With good fats in, drain exactly. out the right. ones. Yeah. So like, there's the, the, the health upside is huge. And for me, you know, on the environmental level, the fundamental thing, if you care about animals, is 
if you want to preserve biodiversity on any level, you have to find a way to repurpose land. You've got to give land back to the animals. We've known this since the 60s, right? Mega linkages are the technical term for this. The only way in a world where population is booming, right, past 7 billion and, and, and moving up, where we're going to have to double food production by 2050, right? We need vertical farms. We need meat. We need all these technologies linked together. And what they will do is they will liberate a tremendous amount of 30% of the planet's surface is cattle ranging land. Yeah. yeah. Right? If we yeah. repur, if in vitro meat means we can repurpose that land for animals, we can stave off the biodiversity crisis, which is fantastic because if we lose biodiversity, we lose ecosystem services and everybody dies. Right? We don't, like, we don't get to kill off all the plants and the animals without repercussions. It will shut down ecosystem right. services. Right. And, you know, hell, a couple years ago when you know, pollination services, right? California had the bee disaster. Pollination services got shut down. It was a $9 billion disaster for three months just because of the almond crop alone. One crop, three months, one ecosystem service, and there are 36 of these that go away mm. if we don't preserve biodiversity. Yeah, it's pretty scary stuff. Now, with, with the in vitro meat, I guess no one wants to be the first person, you know, who eats, who eats this. I guess there's yeah, and, and and I, I, know, I know they're made it already. I read about it online that they've made it, and some people have tried it. Obviously, it's nowhere near being available commercially yet, as far as I know. You, you talk to the guys involved, and they get that they've got the biggest PR battle in the history of the world, right? Yeah, because there's so many religious fanatics too. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a political side, and yeah, the political side here, of it's stem cells, and that's a big yeah, issue. Here, here's my counter argument to that. And I don't necessarily think you can build a campaign around it, but I think you can apply common sense. Right. We are taking organs grown from stem cells, and we are putting them in our bodies right now. Right? We are growing replacement organs. We are putting them in our bodies. Yeah. Right. What is the difference about we are growing replacement meats and we are putting it in our bodies? It's the exact same thing at a different stage in the chain, right? I think for a lot of people, it's just going to be a, a, a matter of cost. If it's cheaper than what's out there, people will gravitate oh, yeah. towards it. will change everyone's yeah, mind. I mean, and all of a sudden, you know, the whole religious <laughs> aspect and political aspect goes out the <laughs> yeah, door. It's exactly. like, well, when you're talking money now, well, because let's just be honest. And, and the health aspect. Don't, don't yeah. under, don't, I mean, they, the, the, uh, you talk, yeah. right, the people involved believe the real selling point is the health aspect, that mm -hmm. we can make beef you know, incredibly good for you. And we can turn beef into preventative medicine, basically. That's a very cool idea, especially because, as we know, as people rise out of poverty, meat consumption goes up, right? right. If we can increase global standards of living, which has to be everybody's goal, we're going to increase meat consumption. It's just the way it works. So we're going to have to, you know, find something, you know, fish farming, in vitro meat. We need all of these technologies. Right. And this is what you talk about in, in abundance, right? With Peter, is it Di Diamandis? Diamandis. Peter yeah. and I, um, abundance is about four emerging forces that give us the power to significantly raise global standards of living over the next 20 to 30 years. One of those forces is exponentially accelerating technology, of which in vitro meat falls into that category. Um, so it gives, you know, one of the things it gives us a chance to do is feed the world and save biodiversity at the same time. Uh, that's that's really fascinating. You have another book coming out with him, don't you? Isn't that on yeah? The so so this in February we have Bold, which is sort of the follow-up to Abundance. Abundance was okay. kind of a look at the macroscopic big picture. When we were done, everybody said, "Fantastic, it's great. I love this Abundance stuff. How do I get some?" And Peter and I sort of looked at each other and we're like, "Oh wow, yeah, forgot about that one." And so you know, immediately you know, spent 
jumped back in and spent, you know, the years since abundance researching kind of that very question, how do you harness exponentially growing technologies? How do you um, how do you handle harness exponential organizational tools like crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, online communities, those kinds of things? And what is the psychology of going big and bold and playing at scale? Like if you're going to make these kinds of world-changing plans, you need to be able to think at scale. The brain is not hardwired to do this. And there are strategies and psychological techniques that people have developed to solve these puzzles. So we, right. we, we take a, a deep look at that. A lot of, in that section, actually, we, we took a really hard look at kind of some of the tech billionaires, Larry mm. Page, Jeff Bezos, and, and, and did a lot of analysis of their speeches, plus interviewing them extensively as to how do they think at scale and how do they you know, play in an exponential world. Yeah, I, I can't wait for that to come out. But hey, we appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks so much for coming on. Real pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And then, again, the book is The Rise of Superman, Decoding the Science of Ultimate Human Performance, Stephen Kotler. And where can people find out more information about you? StephenKotler.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. Perfect. And then you have so many lectures on YouTube as well that I encourage people to check out and listen to. I've watched a ton of your stuff. can't get enough. And also your Chihuahua organization is incredible. Just one more time, what's the website for the nonprofit you and your wife run? Here's all of me. StephenCollar.com is my website. Rise of Superman will give you all those cool videos that you've been talking about, RiseofSuperman.com. Uh, if you want the free flow profile, it's FlowGenomeProject.co. That's .co. And the animal sanctuary is RanchoDeChihuahua.org. Perfect. Awesome. So, yeah, we'll definitely put all those links in the show notes, folks. So, Thanks again, Stephen. We appreciate it. Gentlemen, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot, man. Take, Take care. care. You, have, you have a good Bye-bye. one. And again, folks, check out Stephen's book, The Rise of Superman. It's an awesome read. I actually just got Abundance. That's one of his older books, but I, I got that just this week, so I'm going to plow through that. And love to have him come back on the show, maybe talk, maybe get him and Peter, the other co-author of the book, and talk about some of these emerging technologies, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to have stuff to say about that whole – even. The, oh, especially about the beef. <laughs> yeah, even though even though we just briefly talked about the whole in vitro. I, yeah, they're like, I, wait a minute, I, I could already anticipate some <laughs> of I'm not eating any meat that. from the well, in vitro. Well, like, come on. To my well, <laughs> if you – tend to go out to eat, you're probably eating some but, type of, you know, yeah, exactly. man-made meat as it is. I'm not going to eat in vitro, but I'll eat farms loaded with chemicals and other garbage <laughs> that'll give me cancer, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, like I said, like my brother always says, they go, they go, people, like my father's a real economist, right, always looking for the cheapest deal. He goes, like, look, all they got to do is get the price down, and then exactly. people will buy it. It's a wrap. That, that's the way people <laughs> that's what are. I said. Yeah, eventually, <laughs> you drop that price, then, you know, political views, religious views go right out the window. It's like, you know what? My financial you rules everything first. <laughs> Cream, man. Cash rules everything around me. Whether it's healthy or not, if it's cheap, <laughs> exactly. people are going to gravitate towards exactly. like, like people are so health conscious now, you know, like, <laughs> oh, we got we got an epidemic of, of health nuts in America. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, healthy is spreading. Somebody in the news well, today. <laughs> one of the reasons why people are so unhealthy right now is because junk food is so cheap. Exactly. You can go buy I mean, come on, 100 man. cookies and, for a buck. You can go get like 50 packages of ramen noodles for like $5. I mean, yeah. Exactly. And if you're a college student, that's just like, wow, okay, I can survive off of that. So, yeah, man, when it's that cheap, you know, no one questions their morality at all at that point. It's just like, look, man, I can either be altruistic right here or I can be broke. <laughs> you know, so, I, so let, for this moment, let me go ahead and just go ahead and take the cheap shot do and get the energy to do what I need to do, at least the perceived energy. And then I can work on becoming, you know, on building my money or whatever and then eating better. Just, you know, just like you were saying, man, just like when the economic situation, in, you know, improves, 
then that's when meat consumption goes up for most people, man. Right. After a while, they get tired of beans and rice, you know, <laughs> and, and oatmeal, you know, especially in the hood, you know, and, well, people, and low, in low Kenya, income. In people, people in Kenya couldn't understand, you know, my brother, a vegetarian, myself, my mother. On purpose. And then, yeah, on yeah, purpose. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like all these wealthy Americans and they, they don't eat meat. They, they, they were just totally flabbergasted by that. They couldn't understand. They go, they go, yeah, a lot of people in, in Kenya are vegetarian, but not, not by choice. They no choice to do this. Not like someone getting the meat. They're saying no, 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 no. You know, they're eating. They're eating a, 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 a what's it called? Ugali every day with yeah. cornmeal because that's what they have access yeah, to. But, but I tell you what. That, yeah. I mean, you have to you have to go out of your way to find some. I don't know how it is now. I mean, I, I haven't been there since 1997 or so. But you had to go out of your way back then to find someone that was obese, and it was only in the city. You get outside. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. You're done. No. Forget it. You're not yeah. finding anyone. Obese out there no trust me it has not changed a bit you know my wife is just there in our mission you know last year she said yes pretty much everything's still the same i can say that much about uh you know third world countries as you want to call them one thing about it you know change doesn't happen as rapidly like it does over here so a lot of times so what happened in 1997 you know pretty much is still going on as far as the, the outlook you know and the way most people are most people are still there's still not an obesity problem there you know, right. it's, just, it's more of these more technologically advanced places, though. You start seeing that rise in places yeah. like China, you know, sure. we, you know, when everybody thinks like, well, you know, all Asians, you know, they're slim and, you know, they they eat well. And no, China's got a lot of McDonald's and Starbucks and all this other crap that we've dumped on them. And sorry, China. Right. Now you're looking like us. <laughs> you know. That's going to be my new weight loss campaign where I'm, I'm just going to have people move out to Nakuru in Kenya and you <laughs> live you out there for yeah. a month. <laughs> that's part of my coaching program right there. So. I was like, try to hold on to that weight there, buddy. <laughs> that's going to be the challenge. Like, start how much doing, We started doing retreats out there. Yeah. You're going to lose weight whether you like it or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the weight just fell off. Yeah, you didn't have a choice. Yeah, just, just you can get every day, you know, <laughs> and so you actually have to walk. A real, a real Kenyan experience. You're going to live in Nakuru. You're going to eat corn meal each day and that's it and you're going to be walking around with a gallon of water on your head and bags, exactly. bags all day long <laughs> to my that's my new diet program the ugandan experience like you're gonna have to walk <laughs> five miles to get a drink of water okay? <laughs> exactly <laughs> so just you no just you you don't get to bring a group with there's no group flow in this one you're gonna be the one assigned every day to go get the water and bring it back to the to, to the group <laughs> <laughs> Okay, folks, one way for you to be altruistic and get in the group flow is to use coupon code LLA to support our show by going to MikeMahler.com. Use, get 10% off any nutrition supplements, my testosterone booster, recovery oil, Restorezyme. You know the deal. You've heard it a million times. Support the show by supporting us. Use that coupon code and get a discount on some great products. And how about with you, man? The exact same thing at NewWarriorTraining.com. Same deal here. Type in the coupon code LLA on any products you see over there that you can purchase. You can do that and get a discount. And also, also you can support the show by heading over to iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review the show as well as share it with all your friends and let them know. Let them know about great guests like we had today with Stephen Kotler and, and all the other great guests we have coming up as well as the other guests we had in the last 100 plus shows. So do that, please. Take the time. Yeah, I mean, out I mean to we have that. thousands of people listening to the show on a every daily episode. basis. On yeah. a daily basis. Exactly. So we need more reviews on our iTunes page, our Stitcher page. Yeah. It doesn't cost a thing. Just go on there, give us a brief review. It helps improve our ranking. It helps promote the show. And it helps get more great listeners because the bigger the show is, the bigger the guests we can get. Exactly. Because you know, people do live by the numbers and they want to see that. And they're like, hey, how many people listen to your show? So that's yeah, I re- I recently tried to hook up a friend with a good gig and they went and looked at his Twitter, Twitter page and Facebook and he didn't have much of a following and they moved on. So it shows them how important numbers are. 
So anyway, yeah. <laughs> Skype is giving us a hard time here. So we're going <laughs> to we're, we're both going to apply some numbers here and disconnect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so stay tuned, folks. We've got a lot of great guests coming up, man. So make sure you guys are always checking back here. And like I said, share the show. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Take care. Take care.